Good morning again, Cornerstone Church. Excellent. Good to have you all here in person, but also those of you who are joining us online this morning, good morning to you. So glad to be with you, and in case you missed it before, my name is Matt. I'm the youth and family pastor here at Cornerstone, and so a part of Grad Sunday, at least what has been tradition, is that I get the opportunity to preach, and so I'm excited about that today and very thankful for that. Let me encourage all of you to grab your Bibles today. If you brought one in, make sure you grab it. Make your way to 1 Timothy. If you don't have one with you, we do have them uh, in the back of the room, and if you don't have one at home, make sure you take that as a gift uh, from us to you so that you you can be allowing that to change your life because it does have the power to do so. So we're going to be in 1 Timothy, as I said, and it's towards the end of the New Testament. If you've never been there before, it's right after 2 Thessalonians, and you got it. It's right before 2 Timothy. So if you hit 2 Timothy, page back to chapter 6, we'll be in verses 11 and 12 today, but we'll be there in just a moment. As we begin, what I would like to do is just give you guys some context of 1 Timothy, and the person who's writing First Timothy is the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul, of course, is writing to a young man by the name of Timothy, who is a leader in a church called the Ephesian Church. It's a church in Ephesus. And I just want to give you guys a bit of an idea of his environment that Timothy finds himself in, where he's leading, where he's pastoring, where he's trying to influence uh, here in Ephesus. And what we'll find as I give you some of the characterizations of this place, of these people, is unfortunately when we hear them, we might go, ah, that sounds a bit more like the unbelieving world. Uh, the way that these people were acting, the things that they were saying, sounds like those, that, those types of characteristics that wouldn't characterize Christians. But unfortunately, what we find sometimes is that even amongst the church, these types of things happen. Amen? Yes? Yeah. And so, let me just give you an idea of what was surrounding Timothy in the Ephesian church. It was a church that was known for, if you were to read the two letters, you would find out there, there was plenty of quarreling going on. There's plenty of, plenty of bickering and fighting going on between people. Uh, there was a lot of false doctrine that was, that was being taught by some of the influencers uh, within that church. There were some strange teachings um, about marriage and about what you could eat, what was good to eat, what wasn't good to eat. Um, there was what Paul would call irreverent babble and just vain, empty discussions, things that just didn't matter all that much. And something else is there was a strong sense of greed within the Ephesian church. So there was a greed for finances, the financial greed that we're most familiar with, but there was also positional greed as well, wanting to get to a certain position, to have a certain type of influence and be a certain type of leader. And so what we find out is if you read 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, is that much and the majority of what Paul is doing as he writes to Timothy is he's writing an instructive letter. It's a, it's a letter in which he gives a lot of how-tos. He says, Timothy, this is how, how to lead in the church. This is how to pastor. This is how to influence the church that is around you and those who are surrounding you. It's a very interpersonal writing that, 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 that Paul is giving to Timothy here. But then we get to chapter 6, and he gives all these how-tos, and this is what I want you to do, Timothy, as you, as you interact with these people. So I want you to influence them as they're influencing others. But then we get to chapter 6, verse 11, and what Paul does is he shifts gears. He goes from the interpersonal, how to do all these things, to the personal. And it's almost as if Paul goes, Timothy, I want you to teach these things to the people. To Timothy now, as we get to verse 11 and 12 of chapter 6, Timothy, I want you to receive these things. 
And I want you to make sure that these things are what characterize your life, no matter your environment. And so here's what we can do today, and I hope we do today, whether we're a graduate in the room today or uh, we graduated 50 years ago. Whenever you graduate, nobody has to reveal that, okay? But uh, it doesn't matter what we can do as Paul turns from the interpersonal to the personal charge. As if you are a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ, what you can do today as we look at these two verses is you as well and I as well can take this as a personal charge to our everyday lives. And so that's what we're going to do today. Is everybody with me? Say yes if you're with me. If you're not with me, don't say a word. Okay? Please don't. I'm just joking with you. All right. So let's go, to, let's go to verses 11 and 12 of chapter 6, and let's find out exactly what Paul says to Timothy in these two verses here today. So he says this, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So Paul starts in verse 11 by giving a personal address to, to Timothy. He gives him a title, right? He says, but as for you, O man of God. Now, I agree with several Bible commentators who say, hey, uh, Paul undoubtedly was probably trying to catch Timothy's attention just in case he lost it at all in the letter thus far. He's trying to catch Timothy's attention here because whether you and I know it or not, Timothy most likely would have been aware that this title, Man of God, was a very well-known and well-used title in the Old Testament for very famous Jewish uh, leaders of the, of the Jewish nation. Uh, in fact, this title of Man of God uh, was used for men like Moses, and the prophet Samuel, and King David, and the prophets Elijah and Elisha. And so it's very, very well could be that, that Paul threw that in there just to grab Timothy's attention and say, hey, I got something to tell you. But as I studied more and, and as I just spent more time in the text, I got to thinking, you know, it's got to be more than that. It, it's got to be more than just, hey, Timothy might be lacking some confidence, and so we got to puff him up a little bit. we got to put him in the ranks of great leaders I think there's more to it than that. I think, I think what Paul is doing is he's got more of an intent to remind Timothy of who he is. That Timothy, this might be your surroundings. These might be the type of people that are around you and that are trying to influence the church that you are trying to influence. But Timothy, this is who you are. Timothy, you are a man of God. And Paul starts there. And you might ask, well, why is that so important? Why is it important that Paul would, would, would remind Timothy of his identity in Jesus Christ? Well, I think just as you and I know, Paul knew back then, back in those types of, in that kind of circumstance, in those type of, that kind of, kind of context with those kind of surroundings, it's no different today. It's really easy whether you're a Christian or not. If you have surroundings like that, it's very easy to become more or less a chameleon, Right? You, you begin to adapt, you begin to change, you begin to try to blend in, unfortunately, to the environment that is surrounding you. And unfortunately, what can happen is you don't just adapt and, adapt and change momentarily for just, a, for just a little while. What unfortunately can happen, and Paul knew this, is that you can literally become that environment. And so after all these instructions to Timothy and to us, Paul stops and he goes, but as for you, O man of God, Timothy, 
You have this surrounding, you have these environments, people of God, church of God, you have this environment, you have this world that you live in, but as for you, you're different. You're a man of God, you're a woman of God, you're a child of God. You're different from the world that surrounds you, and therefore, since you are different, the way you live, therefore, should be what? Different, right? It's the same for us. In, in case you're unaware, what happens when, when you and I come to faith in Jesus Christ and we have this transformation that happens from the inside out, 1 Corinthians 5.17, I bet somebody who can finish this for me, tells us that the old is gone, the new has come, and we are therefore a new we're a new creation. We have this spiritual identity change in which we are a new creation. But that's not the only text that tells us about our identity in Christ. John, the Gospel of John chapter 1 verse 12 says that, that we are given the right to be children of God because of what Jesus Christ did for us. And so we have this great identity change and therefore if we are in Christ, we can't forget that. No matter our environment, no matter our surroundings. And so what I'm going to do today is we look at, at, at the, these two verses. I'm breaking it up into four sections. And we're going to take away four basic principles. And here comes number one. Principle number one. Whether you're a grad or you've been walking with Jesus forever, let who you are in Christ, and that's absolutely imperative, let who you are in Christ determine how you live. You know, church, if someone were to walk up to me and they were to say, Matt, who are you? I'd go, well, I'm Matt. You just call me Matt. No. <laughs> they say, Matt, who are you or what are you? I could have multiple answers, right? I could say, well, I'm a dad. I'm a husband. I'm a pastor. I'm a teacher. I'm a man. I'm an amazing singer, even though Pastor Nate never lets me on the worship team. <laughs> Why are you laughing? It's not a joke. All those things are true, right? Those are true of me, perhaps all of them. But all those things are true. But here's the reality. My number one identity, if I am a follower of Jesus, has to be just that. My, the number one thing I identify with has to be Jesus. That is who I am. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I am a Christian. I'm a man of God. That's where we have to start because let's be honest, the thing that we identify with most will have the greatest influence on the rest of our lives and how we live our life. Amen? It's so true. You know, this principle came up in my family uh, a couple of weeks ago. I have a kindergartner, or used to be kindergartner, who graduated. Woohoo! Now I doesn't get to do graduation to tell you guys. So that's a long time, right? Anyway, I have a kindergartner, and uh, it came up. Uh, okay, we got a note home. Last week's school, uh, Harvey said the F word. And they weren't talking fishing or football. That's not what was happening. And, uh, and we talked to, talked to our son about it, of course, and, and uh, he didn't even know what he said. Some kid wrote it on a piece of paper, and, and so he said it out loud, and they brought the principal in and all that kind of stuff. It was really fun. And uh, <laughs> it's interesting as uh, we were driving to school the next day, I, I told my wife, Carly, I said, I'll, I'll, I'm going to talk to Harvey about this and just make sure we're all on a, on a good place. And, and uh, he just didn't know what he did at all. And I said, Harvey, um, it, it came out that as, as adults were dealing with this, they, they said, um, it came out that they said to the kids, this isn't a word for kids. This is a word for grownups. 
And I said, Harvey, I said, have you ever heard mom and dad say that word? He said, no, that's why I didn't know what it was. I said, we don't say that word not because uh, we're still kids. I said, we don't say that word because of who we are in Christ. We are Christians. We are followers of Jesus. And therefore, what comes out of our life has to go back to that, to who we are. And so principle number one, friends, let who you are in Christ. And graduates, don't forget it. Wherever you go, let who you are in Christ determine how you live. Okay? And so Paul reminds Timothy who he is, and then he moves to how then Timothy and we are to live. In verse 11, join me there again. He says, but as for you, a man of God, he says, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. So we can look at that command that Paul gives Timothy, and I think we can basically sum up those two uh, verbs that he gives him with one word, run, right? Timothy says, run, or Paul says, run, not Timothy. He says to Timothy, run. And first he starts with this word flee, right? He wants Timothy to run away from something. He says, flee these things, Timothy. And of course, there's a question there. We have this uh, flee these things. Well, what are these things? Well, for the immediate context, if you want to in your Bible, you can look at verses 3 through 10. I'm just going to explain them to you here, here a little bit. But what Paul does is he, he's instructing Timothy on how to deal with these leaders who are wanting to influence but, and, and be leaders, godly leaders, but it's, it's all about themselves. You see, they don't just have false doctrine, but they also have very selfish motives. As, as Paul puts it in verse 5, here's what he says. He says, these type of people, he said, they imagine that godliness is a means of gain. Specifically, financial gain is what he's referring to here. And let me ask you, church, <laughs> and please respond, is, is this doctrine um, and these type of motives from church leaders that, hey, be godly so then you can gain a lot of money, is this still out there, yes or no? It's out there all the time, right? Perhaps you've heard a prosperity gospel that, hey, come to Jesus so that you can have the best life ever here on earth. It's quite different from the life that Jesus lived and that he showed us and he taught, Right? But it's out there still. And Paul wants Timothy to know that if you sense that type of teaching, if you see people or hear people teaching that type of doctrine, run. Run away, Timothy. Get away. Flee those types of things. But why? Well, Paul knows that if Timothy's heart is consumed and captivated by a love of money, then his heart is not going to be consumed and captivated anymore by a love for God. And he puts it this way in verse 10, if you want to look at it with me. He says, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith. And they have pierced themselves with many pangs or griefs or sorrows. Yikes, huh? And so Paul doesn't just warn Timothy, but he warns us as well. Flee from that. Run away. And so then, he doesn't just say flee these things, but he also says, he uses this word pursue, right? He says, I don't just want you to run away from something, Timothy, but I want you, there's something to be running to. There's something I want you to be running after. And fortunately, we don't have to guess this time or look too far. Paul gives us a list of six things. You can look at it with me again. He says, Timothy, I want you to pursue these things. He says, I want you to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. 
And I don't know about you, but I go, yeah, I like that list. And I, I would like it if those types of things are coming out of my life. If people said, if they're talking about me, they said, yeah, Matt, Matt is someone who displays righteousness and godliness. And he has great faith and love for other people. And he's steadfast and gentle. Like, that's wonderful. But I think sometimes I read the Bible and I see lists like this and, and questions just pop into my mind and I'm sure they pop into yours as well. First question is, where do I find it? Like, Paul, where am I running to? You're telling me to pursue this, but where am I running to? I'm, I know what I'm running away from. What am I running to? And then with that, how in the world do I pursue it? What does it look like for me to actually pursue these things? Well, I'm sure many of you in the room today who have been walking with the Lord for a while have learned this same thing that I've learned over the years is that with, with questions that I have, oftentimes the answer is very simple. And, and it generally comes back to the same thing. The, answer is general, the, the answers to my questions are generally found in my relationship with Jesus. You want answers to that, Matt? Just abide in me. And you'll find them. You see, look at that list again. Here's what I mean. He says, I want you to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Okay, got that list? Now look at Galatians chapter 5 up on the screen for you. Paul writes to the Galatian church, and he talks about this thing called the fruit of the Spirit. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. That sounds familiar. Joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, very similar to righteousness. Faithfulness or steadfastness, gentleness, sounds familiar again, and self-control. Do you see it? Much of what Paul calls Timothy and you and I to pursue as believers in Christ is only found as we pursue and run after Jesus himself. These things only come out of us and are a part of us when we abide in our relationship with Jesus. So when I go, Paul, where do I find this? Where do I go to get these things? Go to Jesus. Go to him. You see, Jesus put it this way in John 15, 5. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do how much, church? You can do nothing. And I don't know if you're like me, but I often have the tendency of, of trying it on my own, right? I just think, man, I can be righteous and godly. I can conjure up great faith. I can conjure up enough love for other people. I, 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 can, be, uh, I can remain steadfast in situations on my own, and I can be really gentle with other people. That's just the kind of person I am. What I found out is that those things generally come out of me best when I'm spending time here, in God's Word and with Him. And allowing him to produce what I can't produce on my own. And so Paul says, run after these things. Run after Jesus. Abide in your relationship with him. And it can't just be, well, I did that in youth group in high school. And now I'm going to take a break. No, every day, abiding in him. And these things will characterize your life that Paul wants us to run after. And so, friends... Whether you graduated just a couple weeks ago or you graduated uh, 45 years ago, whatever it is, okay, and whether you're 50 years old or, uh, or you're a kid who just accepted Jesus yesterday, um, let me challenge you to apply principle number two. When you think you've arrived, and I put that in quotations, keep going. When you think you've arrived, keep going. Because here's what can happen is we often can be tempted that I've arrived in a sense 
that now that I walk with Jesus, I'm no longer tempted by that thing anymore. Or hey, now that I walk with Jesus, I can be, be around that crowd again. They, they don't have the pressure to get me to fall into that temptation and to sin anymore. And we, we begin to think we're pretty strong and we're pretty awesome. Or on the other hand, we think, man, I, I'm, my relationship with God is pretty good. And I have a large amount of faith and I have a great amount of love for other people. And I'm really kind and I'm really gentle. But what happens is it becomes more about us than about the God who is in us. And so Paul says, when you think, when you're thinking that way, when you're tempted to think, I've arrived and I don't need to run anymore, there's nothing left for me to run away from, there's no more temptation for me to run away from, and there's no more goodness and righteousness and steadfastness and gentleness and love and faith for me to run to, Paul says, keep going. Keep going, friends. Grads, keep going. Don't stop. Keep running. I call it one of the beautiful frustrations of the Christian faith. It's frustrating that there's always evil and sin to run away from. Amen? It's frustrating. But it's beautiful that we have this God who each and every morning he gives us mercy and he says, run to me. Run to me. Run to me. Every single day. It's beautiful and it's frustrating all in one Big ball of wax. Next, we go into verse 12. Look at it with me. Paul says this. He says this charge. He says, Timothy, I want you to fight the good fight of the faith. Now, perhaps you're familiar with that charge. Fight the good fight of the faith. I love it. It reminds me of one of my favorite songs. Keep fighting the good fight. Told you I was a good singer. By Unspoken. It's really good. Okay. Fight the good fight of the faith. And and here's the thing. This is an awesome battle cry. Timothy, fight the good fight of the faith. And you're going, yes, I want to do that too. And you've probably heard it. It's probably well known. But I wonder how widely it's actually understood. What does this mean to fight the good fight of the faith? What is Paul charging Timothy to do? What is he charging us to do? Well, let's first answer the question, what is Timothy supposed to be fighting for? Okay. Well, let me just remind you of what Timothy's surrounded by. He's surrounded by plenty of influencers that are not teaching the truth. And if they're not teaching the truth, they're definitely not living out the truth either. And so Paul is calling Timothy to fight for the truth of the gospel, to stand on the gospel truth. And this is something that we've rehearsed very, very much lately, especially in our series in the Sermon on the Mount. You go, well, what is the gospel? Well, it can simply be said that it's this, and please help me out, that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, right? We are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. And Paul is saying, Timothy, don't waver from that. You need to stand on that truth. And in church, we can't go away from that truth. We must stand on the truth of the gospel. And, and Paul puts it this way in Romans 6, 8. In his words, here's the gospel again. If we have died with Christ, meaning by faith, we also believe that we will live with him. Church, do we have good hope? No, we have great hope, don't we? We have great hope that we we don't just die with him by faith, but we also have hope that we will one day live with him. And this is the truth that Timothy is fighting for and that you and I on a daily basis need to be fighting for because I don't know if you noticed lately, all it takes is to turn on your phone a little bit. There's not a whole lot of (laughs) truth, right? And there's certainly not a whole lot of gospel out there. Everybody's trying to get us to think differently. 
and to pull away from what we know as true from God's word. And so this is what Timothy and we are to be fighting for. We're to be fighting for the truth of the gospel. But the question also remains, how do we fight? How do I fight? We talked about this. We, we sang about this, right? We, we sang about fighting, but how do I fight? I mean, I know I'm supposed to fight, but how do I fight on a daily basis for the truth of the gospel? Well, that leads us to principle number three. It's this, fight the good fight of the faith by faith. <laughs> Pretty simple, right? Pretty elementary. But I don't know about you, this is one of those things that's really easy to say, but it's really hard to do. <laughs> Anybody amen that one? Because for me, the reality is, is that when lies begin to circle around me, when there's conflict, when I have issues with anxiety or doubt, my natural tendency in my flesh is to become Mr. Fix-It. Anybody else like to become Mr. or Mrs. Fix-It out there? I bet you do, right? You go, I go into problem-solving mode. And, and I begin to think, how can I solve this problem? How can I get over these doubts? How can I prove this person wrong and prove that I am right? Naturally, I don't initially just go, God, talk to me. How should I deal with this? How should I fight this? Or, or God, let me seek your word and seek counsel in your word for how I can fight this battle that's in front of me. Or how about just, God, I just need to be still. I just need to know that you are God. You're completely sovereign and in control and you're fighting. That's not my natural tendency. I wish it was. I'm Mr. Fix-It most of the time. And so what I wanted to do for you, and I imagine that some of you are out there as well doing the same thing, but what I wanted to do this morning, I almost wasn't going to do it, but I thought, you know, this might just really bless some of us in the room today because the reality is whether you're here uh, in person or you're online joining us this morning, there's no doubt many of you are going through battles. There's fights that you are facing in your life, struggles, and things that the evil one is trying to tempt you with. And what I love is that Paul, in his letter to the Ephesian church, the one that, that Timothy is stationed at, he gives them the exact recipe for how to fight the good fight of faith by faith. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18, he lays this out exactly what kind of fight you're in, but also how you are to go about fighting in that fight. And so what I want to encourage you to do, whether it's turning to that scripture in your text, however you receive God's word best this morning, I want you to do that thing. If you need to close your eyes and just receive it as a word proclaimed, or you need to follow it on the screen or follow it in God's word, do that. But hear from Paul how he says that we can fight the good fight of the faith by faith. Listen to what he says, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Do you hear that? We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having all done all to stand firm. 
Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Can I get an amen on that? That is the fight we're in, you guys. Students, as you go off, and wherever you go, whether it's Madison, Stevens Point, La Crosse, just thinking of some of the names I just saw, wherever you go, a spiritual battle is waiting. A spiritual battle is waiting. That is the battle that you are in. But don't fight it in the natural way. Fight it the way that Paul outlines for us. Listen to how he simply, how God simply wants and intends for us to fight in this battle. It's so simple. He says, number one, I simply want you to put on the armor that I give you. You don't have to go make your own. I give you armor. Just put it on. Number two, he says, I want you to just take up this word, the Bible. This is your only weapon. Take it up on a daily basis. Number three, all you have to do after that is you just need to stand. You just need to stand and pray. There's no punch in the air. There's no kick in the air. None of that kind of thing. I just want you to stand and I want you to pray. Because God fights on our behalf. He fights the battle on our behalf. So let's fight the good fight of the faith, wherever that is, by faith. Finally, Paul closes verse 12 in these two powerful verses with the following. He says, Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Here's what I want you to do. Some of you are taking notes today, and I know we haven't filled in the blank for number four, so just relax, okay? <laughs> but underneath the words, uh, underneath number four, I want you to write the words, take hold, and then put a dash, and I want you to write the name Peter. Write take hold and write Peter, because many of you are familiar with the story that can be found in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 14, and what we find there is Jesus and his disciples have been doing some pretty intense ministry, and so Jesus sends them off into a body of water uh, uh, in a boat, and, uh, and Jesus says, I'll catch you later. Well, they didn't know how he was going to catch them later, right? And so Jesus comes out walking on the water. The, the seas are getting stormy. The, way, the, the wind is getting really strong. The waves are getting high. And Jesus comes out to them walking on the water, and they get terrified, right? They think there's a ghost that's walking to them on the water. Then there's Peter. And sometimes we make fun of Peter. But you know what? Peter had a lot of faith. And Peter said, Lord, if it's you, call to me and I'll come out to you. And Jesus said, well, it's me. Come on out. And so Peter, by faith, he puts one foot out of the boat. He puts another foot on the boat. And he begins to walk by faith in a miraculous way out to Jesus on the water. You know the story. But as he's getting close, eventually he begins to see everything around him that is scaring him, the waves and the wind. And, and he gets fearful and he takes his eyes off of Jesus. And he begins to sink. And it says in Matthew 14, verse 31, that Jesus immediately reached out his hand and he took hold of him. 
And I don't speak Greek. I don't. I know that's probably amazing that I don't. But I don't. And, but something I learned this week is that took hold in Matthew 14, 31, that Jesus reached down and took hold of him as he was sinking is the same Greek word that's used for take hold of the eternal life in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12. And here's what Bible commentator Kent Hughes has to say about this word uh, for take hold. He says, here's what it means. It means to take hold of or grasp sometimes with violence or to take hold in order to make one's own. That this thing is mine. I have it and you're not going to have it. Don't you try to take it off. You're going to have to break my fingers if you want this thing. This is the type of meaning that, that this Greek word has for taking hold or grasping something. And imagine, like, it wasn't like when Peter was sinking, Jesus was like, gotcha, right? No, I mean, these are real men, human beings, big, burly dudes. And Jesus goes, ah, and takes hold of them with great vigor and violence to save his life, right? And this is the kind of holding that I think of. Many of you might have seen these up here. They're, they're tube rings, and you're like, why does Pastor Matt have two brings? Always an object lesson, okay? So uh, there, there's a camp game that I've played before. It's called Sling Slap. Can you say that with me? Sling Slap. Now, we may or may not play this at youth group. It depends if I'm going to get in trouble for this or not, okay? But uh, this game is called Sling Slap. And this is kind of holding I think of when I think of this taking hold of the eternal life. So, so in this game called Sing Slap, you get in a big circle with your friends, and you're all connected by these tube rings, okay? And in the middle, there's a garbage can. And the goal of the game is to be the last person standing, basically, or left in the circle, and then you are the victor, okay? But how you get out is if, as the amoeba of people is pulling and tugging and trying to rip your arms off, if you touch the garbage can in the middle, you're out. But the other way that you are out is if the person next to you yanks this thing and you drop your tube ring. They pull it out of your hand. So when you go into this game, no matter how much your arms hurt, no matter how much it feels like your sternum's going to split or anything like that, no matter what kind of pretzel your friends have you in, because that happens. I've seen videos where kids do flips over the garbage can as their buddy's going, it's absolutely insane. Go to YouTube. It's awesome. We haven't done that at church, I promise. Okay? But this is the kind of taking a hold that I am talking about. That, that Paul is talking about to take hold of the eternal life with such vigor and violence that there might be some suffering involved. There might be some pain involved. Actually, I'm going to guarantee it there is. But it's worth it. You have this eternal life. Take hold of it. Graduates, take hold of it, church. Let that be the life that you are holding on to. And it leads us to principle number four. You can write this down as we close here. May we hold on to the life that God's given us. Hold on to the life that God's given you. Don't reach for the one that the world promises. Church, can you answer a couple of questions for me? Very simple yes or no questions. Does the world make a lot of promises, yes or no? It makes a lot of promises. Does it keep a lot of the promises it makes? No. I hope you heard that, graduates. The world makes a lot of promises, but it doesn't keep a lot of the promises that it makes. You see, 
think we're all aware we live in a broken world, a sin-stained world. Therefore, the world is destined to overpromise and underdeliver. And here's the reality, no matter how successful you are in graduates, no matter how successful you become, how much money you make, how big of a house you live in, how fast of a car you have someday, none of those things will ever fill the hole that's in each human heart that can only be filled with the life that is found in the gospel, which again is by grace, through faith, in alone. There's a hole in every human heart. And as we embrace that gospel, that, that hole gets filled and satisfied like no other thing can ever satisfy it. Amen? You know, church, my wife and I have been in student ministry now for 10 years, uh, six years on staff and four years volunteering before that. And Grad Sunday, as I told the, the group here this morning, is definitely one of the most bittersweet days of the year, right? It's absolutely sweet um, to consider these kids and, and all that God has brought them through. And, and I've only seen, for this group, I've seen six years. I've seen all that God's brought them through and, and to be able to just recount all the memories, whether it's from camp or crazy games like this, which we never played, whatever it is. You know, it's sweet. And to just recap those memories. But there's the bitter part, right? There's the hard part with that. Of course, there's hard to, to go, hey, this class is moving on and they're not going to be uh, here on Wednesday nights anymore, which is disappointing. But I think everybody can relate that it's just hard knowing the world they go out into, right? Just knowing the world they go out into. They've already gone out into it, but now it's, it's a new season. It's more independent. And so that, that's hard. That's hard. And here's, here's the reality. The world is going to try its hardest, not just on our grads, but for all of us. It's going to try its hardest to make us look like it, to make us act like it, to make us live like it. But remember who you are. As for you, you're different. So live different. When you think you've arrived, keep going. When you're in that fight of faith, fight it by faith. And hold on to the life that God's already given you. Don't reach for the one that the world is trying to promise you. Because it'll just slip through your hands. Remember that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to start by saying thank you this morning. Thank you that in Christ there's great hope. There's everlasting hope. There's life that's worth holding on to. And that you go with us in everything and through everything. You never leave us. You never forsake us. No matter how hard the days are or the moments are, the weeks and the months and the years are, God, you stand with us and you fight our battles on our behalf. And we thank you for that. God, thank you for who you have made us in Christ. We don't deserve any of it. But Lord, help us each day to wake up knowing who we are in Christ and therefore taking that identity and live differently. 
and watch the world change around us. Thank you, God. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.